proper taper. You know, if you have a proper taper from a proper training build, you should be gaining at least two or three percent in performance anyhow. If not, four, five, or six if you really nail a good taper. Mm -hmm. And again, if you add equipment changes in that, that is huge. And that's where the trust and, and, and you know, faith in what you've right. done right. Uh, it comes, you know, comes in handy. And you have to develop that. There's mental training. That's the other big thing that people don't do true mental training. You have to set aside time to go through visualization, to plan out your self-talk, to have a routine for relaxation, to put you in the right place. That requires training, just like improving a transition time requires a technical training. You're not forcing a physiological stress there. You are doing something that though will have massive impact on race day. And so again, don't forget those little things. They become the big things. Your head at the end of the day on race day will predict your success or failure more than anything else. That was Neil Henderson of Apex Coaching, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jess, and this is the place where we interview people who are looking, finding, and living their purpose. People who we can all learn from, and today is no exception. We have a great show for you today. Thank you for tuning in and for supporting the YTP. You guys are everything to the life of this podcast, and we are truly grateful for every listen every share, every time you click on the Amazon banner ad to make your purchase, and for your Patreon support, thank you. And thank you, universe, for amazing people like today's guest, Neil Henderson. Neil has been a triathlon and cycling coach since the early 1990s, and from then to where he is today has been years of dedication, belief, and patience. Neil was not an overnight success, and most people are not. And honestly, for the sake of sustainability, to truly weather the storm of life, and to stand the test of time in our industry of passion, we need the robustness. We need robustness in our being that comes along with climbing up one step at a time on our unique paths. And Neil surely knows this. He takes these same elements into his coaching philosophy and understands, like all the greats do, that training and racing is so much more than getting your workouts done. Neil has coached multiple national champions, world champions, and Olympians with names like Flora Duffy, Taylor Finney, Cameron Dye, and Jamie Whitmore. Neil raced professionally while coaching from 2000 to 2003, specializing in Xterra and winter triathlons. Over the years, Neil has become internationally known for his ability to transform data into useful information that he then applies to the training of his athletes with precision and accuracy. In 2011, he received the Doc Councilman Coach of the Year Award from the United States Olympic Committee for his use of science in his coaching. But I think what makes Neil such a skillful coach is that he doesn't just focus on the workouts and the data. He looks at the full spectrum of the human experience, and he does this to bring out the best in every one of his athletes. He looks at their life, stress levels, perfection in their form, equipment, sleep quality, and mental acuity, all as a part of the whole that will elicit change within each athlete. 
These are the little pieces, the little pieces that add up to have a massive influence when it comes to race day. And then on top of it, Neil is just a super cool dude. We caught up with him at Apex headquarters at Raleigh Sport in Boulder last fall. And he was so gracious to open up space in his packed calendar so that we can now share his wisdom and intelligence with the YT community. Although this episode is short because Neil was running to catch a flight, it is chock full of takeaways. And we really think you're going to enjoy it. But first, I want to make a quick announcement for all our Oceanside 70.3 listeners. I am going to be teaching a post-race day yoga stretch-out class at Endurance House in Oceanside. It's free. Everyone is welcome. And I believe it's going to be at 9 a.m. So just check out our social accounts in the coming weeks for more details. All right. Now, let's just get down to brass tacks and enter into our conversation with high-performance coach, Neil Henderson. Thing and all that good stuff. Yeah, no huffing and puffing. Can we shut that door? Yeah. Cool. Yep. Awesome. All right, so we're rolling, so we're going to dive right in because time is precious with you today, Neil. And it's so good to see you. I think the last time I saw you, I ran into you at Cafe Soleil, like right before we were moving back east. So it must have been about six, more than six years ago mm-hmm. now. And we were introduced to you when we were training with Craig Howie right at the beginning of our triathlon career over at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. You were working yep. over there at that point. We were doing our lactate threshold um, tests and getting our baseline. And I have to say, you've you've come a long way from the Gumkowskis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know. It was probably a hard thing to move on from. <laughs> I, I hope that some of that information <laughs> have helped you along the way. And, oh, you know, absolutely. Yeah. We actually, in in our process of getting rid of everything, like we had our old folders right. from Boulder oh. Center that we had to get rid of too. Yeah, so when I, when I joke around like that, I mean, you've got some some unbelievable athletes right now and congratulations on Flora Duffy's world champion at the ITU series that was just such a a joy to watch and we loved it too because we raced down in Cozumel last year and so we were familiar with everything where where it was and um so how were you down there? I didn't go to Cozumel. I've, I have a pretty intense travel schedule. I spent uh, nearly a month in Rio and so had to kind of pick and choose which things I could go to, and I'm right now in the midst of a of a pretty heavy travel schedule. I will be at the Xterra World Championships coming up this Sunday, though. So I've been to uh, you know a lot of the big events, but I just can't make it to all of them, unfortunately. And Flora is going to race. Is she yes, playing Xterra? She's in okay. Maui. She is ready, and uh, you know the the goal at this point, you know, would be to to have that third in a row world title in the Xterra World Championship. So, you know, it's never easy. There's no give me, no gimmies out mm-hmm. there. There's no easy days in Maui, no matter how good you're feeling. Um, anything can happen. So there's definitely uh, still work to be done for, for Flora. And then she goes actually from there to Island House. So she'll have a, a couple days more in Maui Monday and then Tuesday head over to finish out the season with Island House likely. And so for people that aren't familiar with Island House, what is that? It's an invitational professional race. Three days of racing, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The Friday races are uh, actually split up into a swim, bike, and run, kind of like prologue type efforts, short individual efforts on each, you know, very short swim, short bike, short run. Then Saturday is kind of the super sprint style where it's swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run. 
and everything is being added up like a stage race in cycling. And the final day on Sunday then is a sprint distance triathlon that the start order is based on your accumulated time. So the slowest athletes are being sent off within the time gap back uh, to the, actually the leader goes first and then the time gaps back. So if anyone overtakes them, you know, before the finish line. So whoever comes across the line is the overall then winner on the day. So that sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> they last, do that for age groupers. Yeah, they, they did it last year. Again, it was a smaller, smaller number of, you know, professionals that they invite. They had a mix of uh, some long course athletes, some ITU athletes, and they have a similar, similar thing going again this year. Um, and, uh, you know, Flora lost a place on the last day. Also coach Cam Dye, who did it, and he ended up, uh, I think, right on the podium. He was either third or fourth. Got to look back. <laughs> haven't looked at that. That race is next weekend. I got Xterra Worlds first. Yeah. And that's this weekend coming up? Yep, okay. this Sunday. Okay, cool. So so we've just touched upon some of your athletes. So how like how did you get to this point? How did how are you working with Flora? How are you working with Cam Dye and uh, Jamie Whitmore too? Like yeah. how how has this come about? Yeah, in some some cases people look at it, it's like, wow, that's like an overnight success with Flora or something like yeah. that. Well, for me in coaching, it goes back 20 years. I volunteered with the first national team for triathlon in 1996. On my own, I contacted George Dahlum, who was the, the first national team head coach. And I was working in Pennsylvania at the time at, a, at Penn State Center for Sports Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I just wrote a letter, an actual written letter, not an email. I sent a letter to him <laughs> asking if there's any way I could come out and help out in any way. And he actually called me and, you know, we talked and I came out for two weeks on my own dime and just learned and helped, did what I could basically you know, for, for almost two weeks there mm -hmm. and, uh, got to visit Boulder then. And that kind of, you know, piqued my interest of, of coming here. I actually did Boulder Peak Triathlon at the end of that trip, just cause it happened to be the day before I was flying home. So and how, how is that coming to Boulder and doing Boulder it, Peak? It hurt. It hurt. Definitely. <laughs> Again, I had been, been here for, you know, a week and a half plus, you know, maybe 11 days. So I had some of the initial physiological adaptations, but not true altitude acclimatized. Yeah, and that's um, classically just such a competitive race. Absolutely. I, yeah. I'm sure it still is definitely one of my favorites. The first ride we did when we were here this week was we just went out and banged out the the um, Boulder Peak course and nothing like three miles into your <laughs> ride going up old stage, you know, coming Brutal. from sea level. So all uphill to that point too. Mm -hmm. So I did that race yeah, consecutively for many, many years. I still do a relay every now and then when I'm in town. I think in 2008 was the first time that I, I had missed the race when I was going to the Olympics with Taylor Finney. So I did it consecutively every year from 96 through 2007. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices like yep, the Olympics. Exactly. So you came out here, got a taste of Boulder yep. and our experience is that that doesn't go away, especially when you're an athlete. So yep. how long was it before you came back out? Um, April of 2000 or 1997. So just a few months later, I was applying to grad schools. I had applied to CU and, uh, moved out in April, even before I was accepted at CU. I was like, I had been accepted at a couple other schools and the ones that I would have gone to if I wasn't going to go to CU was out in Oregon. So I decided, you know, in Boulder, I'm at least two thirds of the way to Oregon. <laughs> so if it doesn't work out, if I don't get in CU, nice. then I'll just keep going to Oregon and it'll all work out. But fortunately, I did get accepted to CU and, and stayed here and got involved with the CU Triathlon Club team. 
Um, and then again with the collegiate and junior national teams in 1999 when I was finishing up grad school as well. And then how did you get involved with the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine? Because that was the, the next step, right? Yes. You started with them in 2000? Yep. 2001. 2001. So I graduated December of 99. I worked in a, a physical therapy clinic for a little bit. And then uh, shortly after that, I uh, had a great job offer at uh, IBM Boulder. It just opened up a fitness center for their employees. And so had a job offer there, and I also earned my pro card and got my uh, pro card in the same week of that. <laughs> and I said yes to both, that I would, you know, try to race as an elite and professional and work full time as the manager of the IBM Boulder Fitness Center, which I think, you know, went along pretty well for about a year. And that's then when the position at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine opened. And I had actually applied to do an inter internship with with Boulder Center for Sports Medicine when I was in grad school and Andy Pruitt wrote me a nice letter saying, thanks, but no thanks, we don't take interns, good luck. <laughs> and then there was another position opened up as uh, basically biomechanics tech. And I said, you know, I'd love to do it, da, da, da. And it was kind of in that interim period before I started working at IBM Boulder. And he said, you're overqualified for the position. And I said, well, I'm kind of underemployed at the moment. So, you know, I'd still totally do something that I'm maybe, you know, overqualified for. He said, nope, I won't hire you. I'm sorry. Good luck. And finally, then the uh, position as the, the manager and director of the department opened up not long after. And Even better. I was hired. Exactly. Even so better. I kind of got my, you know, at the time, what I thought was my dream job. And, yeah, and uh, was there for 12 years. You know, sometimes things come around and we think like, oh my gosh, this is my foot in. This is it. This is it. And then we get shut down. It's like, oh man, but only to find something bigger and better, you exactly. know, around the corner. And so what was your undergrad degree in? In exercise and sports science. And um, then your graduate? In kinesiology and applied physiology. And that makes you now a data scientist? I uh, <laughs> have now recently become a, a data scientist in that with our sports and, uh, and the evolution of the technologies that are available, we have lots of streams of, of data coming at us and, I, and I, we need to make sense of it. So I understand from the physiological perspective and having worked in a lab and in the science aspect of sport and sports science, taking the data and applying that and looking for ways of making it useful. Basically, data as I view it is is just all the numbers coming at me. And you could give me all the best, you know, sources of data coming at me, but if I can't make sense of it, it's it's actually kind of meaningless. So it has to be transformed. So a lot of it is about taking those data streams coming in and having it transformed into information. Data doesn't inform mm -hmm. until it's transformed. That transformation then, whether that's a graph, whether that's you know some other user interface to be able to understand all of that data coming in, that's information. Then we sometimes have to translate that into feedback. So as a coach, I can get all this data in, I can then transform it through different programs, have information, which is still maybe a little bit difficult. I have to translate it into a usable bit of information for an athlete to pass on for feedback so that then they can translate and change their behavior to be better. And each athlete is different. You can't Absolutely. just group them all into one pot and say, here, everybody's going to practice at, you know, Correct. zone two heart rate. Like nope, everybody is different. Watts, power, perceived effort, all of that. Correct. So how do you, so how many athletes do you have right now? Right now Roughly. I've got uh, about 22 athletes that I coach. Okay. So that's quite a lot of data to transfer. 
to absolutely <laughs> yeah especially when we talk about multi-sport when we're getting it from mm -hmm. multiple sources you know cyclists comparatively a little easier but then i'm an oddball in that i work with cyclists that do cyclocross that do track cycling that do road cycling that are even within road cycling focused on sprinting time trialing gc riders kind of a mix yeah. uh, in that and so there's different data points that are more and less important depending on which sport and so are you having these athletes, are they mostly here in Boulder or are they all over the place? Uh, majority more in Boulder, though I do have some, you know, remote, remote clients and people that are around the world and just have to get that information and feedback back and forth to them. Yeah. So they'll find a place local to them and then they'll get the data to you. Yep. And you're testing them all <laughs> regularly, correct? Yeah. And in some cases now we're even moving to the point with the... the kind of wearable type technology and, and information that we're gathering on every training session. And actually more important as we move forward, what's happening in between training sessions, objective measurements of quality of sleep, quantity and quality of sleep, and some non-invasive ways of looking at something like hemoglobin concentration with the, the uh, uh, core Ember device. There are some new pieces of information that are coming into us that can help understand training and stress response of that one individual. And that's the thing. There's some blanket things and we can get, you know, bell-shaped curve, hit lots of people pretty close with certain recommendations. But at the end of the day, a lot of the athletes I'm working with, it's only, you know, I need to figure out that last half a percent for them. Cause you're, we're talking, we're talking, yeah. everybody can I mean, train, they can France, sleep, they can eat. Yeah. This is the top level record, uh, you know, you need to get to that multiple Olympians mm -hmm. in addition to the teams I had. And so, yeah, the, the, the demand for excellence is high. And so I have to figure out what each person needs individually by pulling in all these different bits of information. So there is apex coaching. That is, yep, yep. <laughs> and so do you have help? <laughs> I do have several other coaches, um, and that's been a nice addition over the past couple of years. So I actually formed Apex Coaching in December of 99 when I graduated from my okay. master's program at CU Boulder. I was making hundreds of dollars uh, doing, doing coaching, uh, not nearly enough to live on. It was something that I enjoyed doing, and it was still a process, and when I started at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. Um, I started working with, uh, again, a lot more people and a lot more information through the resources there, but I still kept coaching elite athletes with Apex Coaching, though all the amateur athletes like you guys mm -hmm. coming into Boulder Center for Sports Medicine, I was then working with through there and actually coached some amateur you know, athletes through there. Honestly, in my career, I've coached way more amateur athletes than elite athletes, though you know the, the elites and professionals are the ones that get the higher amount of, you know, uh, right. coverage and, and that sort right. of thing. So it was, um, so back to Craig Howie, he was <clears throat> our connection. And, yeah. and I remember when he was really pushing to be pro, um, he invited me in to come train with him mm -hmm. uh, one day a week. And it was with oxygen and yep. we were on our trainers and you put the yep. Tour de France up there and you're, you're doing like, I, I want to say like threshold efforts. It was pretty intense, but with the oxygen, yeah. it made it just a little bit easier. Correct. So 
working with age groupers like that, do you miss do you miss it much or definitely okay <clears throat> in some cases you know the the rate of gains that we can see with with an amateur with an age group athlete in a period of time are greater than what we can get out of an elite athlete you know with the elite athlete we're already at that upper cusp mm-hmm. where we have to do a lot of work to get a very little bit of improvement a lot of times with an amateur or age grouper there are some really big gains that can be made in short periods of time by you know, just being good with that, that training progression and balancing nutrition and balancing life. Um, and that's, a, again, a, a thing that with a lot of the elites, there's a little less focus there because literally in many cases they live a lifestyle that removes those additional life stressors like work. They have less social commitments. They make less social commitments because of that smallest margin of difference in recovery impacts the performance, which that, you know, half a percent may make a difference between a, a podium position and mm-hmm. being paid or getting a getting a, uh, a contract, those type of things. So it's different. But there's still a lot of ideas that overlap in both. It's just at what level of importance. So going into the minute micro level of some of the performance analysis with age groupers isn't always the most useful mm-hmm. uh, exercise. You know, it's not not practically going to change their performance as much as pulling back and looking at big picture, looking at sleep, looking at balancing life and life stresses. If somebody is stressed out because of what family commitments they have, what work commitments they have, and their training is excessive relative to those things and they're imbalanced, it could be a great amount of training and a great plan, but because it's taking away from those other, it's actually mounting a level of stress and distress where ultimately they're worse off than mm-hmm. if they were doing much less training and had a better balance between work and family life. And so a lot of times that's, again, a difference that I'm not doing as much of that now. And I really enjoy that process because as I mentioned, I got my pro card, I worked full time. And for a period of time, you know, I was working on my PhD, I was working full time, I was racing and then got engaged and with a family, it was one of those things I had to give up my PhD work and, and just, I could only do family work and still saw and coaching. I had then retired from racing. So those were the things that I could do. And I put at that priority level. I think people underestimate the um, the effect of stress, like when we're talking about age groupers, because yeah. we are balancing a lot of different things. And and I love what you said, and I, and I want to repeat it, is that some people, when their life is, is stressful, uh, you know, work or the commute or finding time for family, all of that starts to add up. And I would say that it impacts recovery the most, which is then going to impact the next workout. And so people like that maybe should look at how many hours and maybe it's that is where the place that something needs to give. Exactly. And going, would you say then would go for more just quality within that time frame? So think of the training that we're doing. If you have a set number of hours per week, what are you trying to accomplish there? What's your real goal? Are you trying to create change rather than accumulate a certain amount Mm -hmm. of work done? Is it specific work that you need to do to be better, to change your current capacity? 
that's where often we get kind of stuck in, well, I need to do it just because I have this many hours and yeah. I'm supposed to do that. But or I got to log the miles. I got to log the miles. And I think so much exactly. gets lost in that mindset of, yep. especially when we're talking about Iron Man, which is most of the people that we work with mm -hmm. is, um, yeah, it's just, it gets lost in there because there's this outside, they're watching everybody else. Everyone else. They're right, watching the social media. Oh, they see and this. It's, it's posted on Strava. You're getting bombarded by, again, so, excess yeah. noise. Data, yeah. maybe not information. That could very it's well be like, adding to your stress. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely it is. Um, I had athletes in Rio that literally took social media uh, apps off their phone. Oh, no Twitter, yeah, no so Facebook, no on their phone so that they weren't getting that continuous barrage of boom, boom, boom. You know, whether even if, if it's positive, like good luck, good luck, good mm -hmm. luck, just getting this overload of even a positive thing is an overload. Um, so... Yes, the, the balance aspect. And again, the specific aspect of your training. What are you trying to accomplish in a given training session? Are you just trying to log the miles? Because that's not going to create change necessarily. So what do you, are you working on technique there? And, and, you know, I often see, again, people that have gotten used to doing certain amount of training and just doing the same and not really thinking it through. Uh, giving a talk here on Friday about cycling fitness and not just the fitness component in triathlon but really the skills and technical and tactical abilities that can change your race can change your whole actual relationship with cycling even you know riding outside riding with others safely and not being stressed out you know we have some athletes that get to a big race and there are a lot of athletes on course and they've not ridden around many other people and they are terrified or they just don't have really good technical skills and they're at a race that requires those skills because it rained or it's windy or the road surfaces are not nearly as good as what they're used to. And all of a sudden it's, it's, it's a really bad situation for them because they haven't prepared properly for that. They don't have a, a better skill set outside of the physical or physiological development that that technical and tactical ability has gotten lost and or undeveloped or underdeveloped. And all of those things are adding more stress. And it's stressful. Yeah, right. the day before the race, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this hill, <laughs> the climb, the turn, the whatever it is, the wind, the people, the all of that right. is all of a sudden now clouding what should then be a time of, you know, calm yeah. and, you know, mm -hmm. centering in on what you are going to do and what you're capable of. And all of a sudden you have all this external stress because your preparation didn't include pieces that would have just changed that for you, would have reduced anxiety. And again, going back to this underestimation of the effect of stress, you know, st the stress hormone that everybody knows is cortisol, and cortisol is a part of the endocrine system, like the hormones. Yep. And when you ha and and that system works on yep. balance. Yep. So if one hormone is out of balance, guess what? Everything redundant else. Redundant systems to back up and then <laughs> take over and yeah. everything starts to get. Everything's out sure. of balance. And this is how, I mean, would you say the majority of people are showing up to, to races in some capacity that they're, you know, they're training and living and, and racing in a state of imbalance? I mean, I know just from um, statistics about our, our society in general, 
Yes. Most of the people cruising down Foothills Parkway right now going 70 miles an hour are driving in a state of imbalance. Yeah. And that's probably affecting, you know, safety on the roads that we have. Yeah. For sure. When I was at Boulder Center for Sports Medicine doing, you know, the standard physiology testing with, you know, predominantly amateurs, if I looked at that big picture percentages, close to half of the people were training consistently harder than their body was adapting to. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It's not about the load of work you're doing. It's not the accumulated volume that wins you anything. It's whether your body is adapting and improving its capacities. So I come at it from a very different angle than a lot of coaches and a lot of folks where I want to apply the minimum stress that will yield the maximum response, not the maximum rate of gain of improvement in fitness, not the maximum of fatigue, not the maximum that they can tolerate without getting injured because we're, I know, um, mm-hmm. uh, already on the downslide. At that point, we are overdone when we're at the point where we're, you know, going to fall off a cliff. You know, a lot of athletes, oh, the edge, the razor's edge is the place to be. No, that's actually a really terrible place to be because if you go over just a little, that can end your season. You know, it could be a, a massive injury. It could be a full-blown overtraining syndrome. There are some things that being on that edge is actually really not a good place to be. So when we can get back to a point where we're looking at the best rate of improvement over time, now we're really doing things and we have a better balance. We can tolerate if we have a little increase in work stress and not be off the cliff of stress. Mm -hmm. We're not over the edge. We, We can then dial back a little bit, get things more balanced. If you're already running the edge and then something goes wrong, your nutrition is poor for a few days, sleep pattern gets disturbed, that can be, again, massively impacting. And and the recovery from that is individual, but if it's been going on for weeks Mm -hmm. or months, it may take very well weeks and months to come back out of it. And and what you're talking about to me is it takes time. So when we were just talking about Flora Duffy, like she didn't just come onto the scene, like she's been working hard at this for a long time she just didn't come in this year and i've seen her do races where she's gone off on the bike and like really push it and then she falters on the run like yep. but she went out there and she was doing it and it was probably a prescribed workout and learning right. where that limit is where that, exactly Where's and i think a lot limit? of athletes want to just they want that quick fix like if i go hard for like five weeks really really hard this is going to pay off and i'm going to hit my pace yep in most cases those super overloads are just it's a new mental thing that maybe mm. somebody does, accomplishes a, a, a goal, but the fatigue is so great that you have to recover and rest so much that it's actually not worthwhile. Yeah, you have to let mm-hmm. go everything that you potentially gained because the fatigue was so great. Um, that very much happens in, in training, especially like overload periods. I mean, Flora has a story. I met her in, in 2008 on the way to the 2008 Olympic Games with Taylor. We we're on the same flight from London to Beijing. She was going there injured. She was she she was in a bad place going into Beijing and actually got lapped out on the bike. Didn't finish her first Olympics. And then in London, she was you know she was in school at CU, so she was balancing being a full time student in in her undergrad and still racing professionally. She had actually kind of given up triathlon right after wow. 
Um, she came to school at CU in January of 2009, and I got a call. I said, hi, my name's Flora. I think I may have met you on a flight um, to, to Beijing. I'm not doing triathlon anymore. I just want to race bikes. You know, do you think you'd be you know, interested in working with me? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And so she was doing collegiate bike races that spring and having some good success. And she did, you know, one X terror race at the end of that summer and hated it. <laughs> she was like, I'm still done with triathlon. It wasn't until 2010 that, you know, she was swimming a little bit. You know, she was definitely swimming some more and got to a point where she could run healthy. And, you know, decided that summer in 2010 to, to give it one more try just to see, you know, there was the World Cup race in Des Moines. And she went out and had a top 20 finish, you know, probably 19th or 20th. And she was like, that was kind of fun. I was like, all right, well, you know, we'll be smart about it. And she had a really nice progression into London. And unfortunately, first lap of the bike, she went down. She crashed in oh, a I corner. It was really that. oily. I don't know if yeah, you've ever seen. That. You can watch the video. Her yeah. wheels are continuing to rotate as she goes down. There were three, two or three in front of her who went down. And, you know, she's a great cyclist. There's nothing you can do. You could put anyone, I don't care who it is best cyclist in the world in those same conditions, you're going to go down. And she finished London, but a very big disappointment. She had finished seventh at the uh, WTS race mm -hmm. in San Diego, just, you know, in May that year, had won a World Cup just the week before that in Latalco, and had another disappointment in, in uh, London then. And so she finished up school then, you know, in 2013. And so 2014 was the first year that she was really kind of all in without having the, the extra school. stress of mm -hmm. school. And that's where, you know, she focused on Xterra and had that kind of rise and that mastery level of execution in the race and be, was able to learn how to manage her effort in a technical bike and a little longer race than the Olympic format. And she was still doing ITU racing. And then 2015, she had, again, some continued success, the, the, the W, uh, Abu Dhabi WTS mm -hmm. uh, podium was a, a massive, like, oh my gosh. Uh, and I was actually fortunately able to be at that race. That sounds like, like a Flora. cool place. It's like, Flora, <laughs> like, that's, that's the level. That's what you can do, you know? And, uh, you know, it's continued to progress. And this year, you know, again, overnight success that's taken her many years to get there. You know, we worked together for a number of years. And what was that like seeing her become the ITU world champion? Because I know we were jumping out of our seats. Yeah, we were absolutely. just yeah. cheering. And I think I even was crying. It was just, it was amazing. Yeah. So I can't even imagine from your seat, what was that like? It was absolutely one of those best moments. Uh, you know, there's going into that, you know, was there an opportunity? Yes. Was there a chance? Yes. Was it going to be easy in any way, shape or form? Absolutely no. I mean, Gwen's only been beaten what, twice mm -hmm. in the past two years. So it was going to require, if not beating her, finishing no more than one place behind her. And that was tough. I mean, Gwen clearly won the Olympic game. She was on phenomenal form for had a, a good Olympics in eighth. Uh, in some ways, you know, she was a little more disappointed than in big picture what it was. You know, for, if you look at Olympic progression, DNF, 43rd, eighth, that's a nice progression <laughs> over the past three Olympics, but it still wasn't. You know, not in the medal level, which again, in, in a lot of cases, people look at Olympics, it's either a medal or no medal, which to me is pretty overblown. It's a pretty Im incredibly difficult thing to achieve mm -hmm. uh, and win an Olympic medal. And there are a lot of phenomenal athletes who never have and never will. And, and, you know, a lot of phenomenal ones then who have, but that 
performance in Cozumel, the way it was with such a small gap out of the swim. And then that bike just, the pieces fell into place. It was situation. It was like, if this happens, that might happen. Like everything was like right on this tenuous, maybe, maybe, yes, maybe next, yes, maybe, yes. And I mean, I'm just writing down the splits as I'm looking at the time gaps and oh my gosh, this is possible, this is possible. And then on the run, I'm looking, oh my gosh, she may have taken it out too fast. She actually put time into Gwen. Like mm-hmm. this yeah. is now, we're in uncharted territory, but she doesn't look bad. You know, she was actually, she looked very good second lap. And it was even, hot. Yes, and a little more and then came back a couple seconds. But the way she was running, it was like, this is, it's happened. You know, at that point, it, it is happening. This is not going to be stopped. You know, I saw that with that one lap to go unless something just crazy, which again, Johnny Brownlee, the next, yeah. you know, you see what could happen. I, I think I saw a tweet from, from <laughs> Barry Sift before the race was over. You better be celebrating. I was like, uh-uh, there are no, there are no chickens yet. That's just an egg out there on course. You know, I am now not counting anything. Especially with Gwen behind it you. It's done. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Anyone. Res- well, yeah. Always yeah. respect the competition. You mm-hmm. know, I, Ask that of my athletes. I, as a coach, will always respect you. Never know what can happen. Mm-hmm. So, not till it's all done. And when it was done, man, just that incredible emotional, just a high. And uh, that that was a great day. Just the execution. Um, I think my last text to to Flora before that was, you know, just have fun pushing your limits. Day before, that was that That's was great. a final advice. You know, pushing the limits, and she mm-hmm. did. Oh, she definitely, I mean, she definitely did. The execution was, it was so impressive, and it was such a joy to watch. Yep. And many, many years and hard days in the making together. Yeah, exactly. Years, hard years even. Yeah, many, it's patience. And if you don't love it, if it's not filling you up, you know, she took a break from it, and that break was exactly what she needed, you know. Yeah, recenter and find what Mm -hmm. she wanted and rediscover that passion for it. Yeah, absolutely. Which is big. So what's the biggest thing you see with, with amateurs and yeah. and trying to take them back from going too hard all the time and, and and maybe sprinkle in that easy stuff? What So what do you believe in? What's your philosophy? Yeah, um, again, one of the other, I'd say, mistakes that commonly are made by a lot of, of amateur and age group athletes is this pushing consistently hard, training fairly hard. You know, if we think of like Ironman race pace, doing a lot of work at Ironman race pace, like, yeah, work hardening. I'm just going to go there. I'm going to hold that speed. I'm Mm going to hold that power. I'm going to hold this pace. I'm going to do everything there. But in fact, there's not a lot of physiological adaptations that occur at that level. Changing your performance occurs typically from pushing well above that. And in some cases, even well below that. It is in getting to both ends of the spectrum of truly hard and truly easy that we can change our performance more so than sitting in that middle hard zone it's very difficult to break that habit and you have to be disciplined some of it you know when i ask athletes to sometimes change and start doing this if they're not doing the easy easy enough the hard can never be hard enough and so it takes first that half step back to dial down Mm-hmm. to dial it back, to go truly slower, to go truly easier, so that when you go for your more intense sessions, then you have enough recovery from the prior sessions that you can actually push harder and elicit a change. 
So if you don't go easy enough, you can't go hard enough. And, and if you don't hit those ends of the spectrum, the middle level won't change very much. I, I love that. That is, that is said so well. I think a lot of people um, come across the concept they can't wrap their brain around, or right, I need to do a five-hour bike in tw- at 21 miles an hour, but you've never had me ride 21 hours an hour for five hours, and they can't grasp that. But you need to believe exactly. and have faith in that process. Race day equipment proper taper you know if you have a proper taper from a proper training build you should be gaining at least two or three percent in performance anyhow if not four five or six if you really nail a good taper Mm -hmm. and again if you add equipment changes in that that is huge and that's where the trust and 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 you know faith in what you've done uh, it comes you know comes in handy and you have to develop that. There's mental training. That's the other big thing that people don't do true mental training. You have to set aside time to go through visualization, to plan out your self-talk, to have a routine for relaxation, to put you in the right place. That requires training, just like improving a transition time requires a technical training. You're not forcing a physiological stress there you are doing something that though will have massive impact on race day. And so again, don't forget those little things. They become the big things. Your head at the end of the day on race day will predict your success or failure more than anything else. You are speaking our language with the mental training. So I know uh, we got to run here, but thank you so much, Neil. It has been awesome to sit across from you and reconnect after so many years. And you're doing amazing things. And it's it's only because of your dedication and your vision and your hard work, right? So everyone be patient, right? Like it's, It does take time. It <laughs> takes time. Yep. And then... And it's not like you're not working hard now. You're traveling. I'm looking at your calendar, which you're saying all the red marks are travel. And um, you're doing a lot of travel. You've got a family. You've got these amazing athletes. And you are somehow finding balance in there. Yeah? Yep. Still finding some balance. I'm actually training. I'm going to be going down to the Miami Man race to try to qualify for Aqua Bike Worlds next year in, in Penticton and see if I can... See if I can have a good one next August. So Sweet. Well, we'll be checking out those results and we'll be with you on race day. All right. Great. Thank you, Neil. Very much. Thank you, guys. All right. That's it. Episode 45 with Neil Henderson. There's so much there. You know, it reminds me a bit of our chat with Shane Eversfield from episode 20. If you haven't listened to that episode, you have to go back and listen to it. If you did listen to it, go back and listen again. I think I'm going to do that. There's so many similarities there. But it's this concept that like everything counts, right? Like every pedal stroke, every night of sleep and every off balance experience and this constant reevaluation of our goals to make sure that our actions are aligned with where we want to go. It's so important to choose every action, every word, every mindset, right? All of these things ensure that there is constant alignment with our vision and then being open to see when we are misaligned. Course correction only takes an instant. And sometimes that means bagging a workout for rest or pushing past your normal pace to truly go hard within a hard workout. Neil's words are gold for any athlete So because this is a quick podcast, it's certainly one to keep in your queue and revisit. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. 
We will catch up with you next week. And again, if you're racing Oceanside or you know someone that is, please join me the next morning for some delicious restorative yoga to get your body and mind back on track. And if you're there, if you come to this class, please come and introduce yourself so that we can ride the high vibe together in person. All right, take care, you guys. Check your alignment constantly to make sure that your actions, thoughts, and words keep you en route to living your greatest vision in this life.